0: Hello welcome back to this podcast. This is episode number two and the title that I've chosen to give this one is my saxophone sound and practice routine. So I thought these two topics would couple especially well together. And so I thought it would be good to just put them both in this one episode um, because there is a lot of overlap and I'll be able to get really nicely in depth on these things and hopefully try to really uncover every stone and get to the heart of the issue with both things and talk through them. And hopefully you'll get something out of it, um, whether it is actual specific things that you might try for yourself, or even maybe just a little bit of perspective on these two things. Um, from someone like myself who's been thinking fairly seriously about both things for many, many years. (laughs) Um, And I know, you know, when I listen to interviews of people like, well, especially like Chris Potter, Branford Marsalis, Mark Turner, um, even if it's just a few minutes of them talking about one of these topics, I really feel like I can get a lot out of it and, um, you know, so that's sort of what I, one of the motivations in the back of my mind for having this podcast where I can really just talk basically unscripted. I mean, I sort of put together a, a, a loose outline of things that I want to cover mainly just so that I don't forget. Um, but I, you know, I haven't written these thoughts out word for word. I'm really just trying to speak from the heart and give you the most absolute truth that I can on whatever I'm talking about, because I think that's how you'll get the most out of it. And I really think about um, younger students and um, people uh, at really all sorts of different experience levels. Um, And, you know, it's sort of, this is actually something that I was just thinking about a few days ago, it's like, it's an interesting thing. Whereas, like, some people sort of come to m- maturity levels at different times. And um, I'm sure there are even probably some, like, middle schoolers out there who could be ready to fully digest or at least start thinking about some of the things that I'm talking about here. Um, and then others, it's like they may not be ready until. Maybe like they're in their late 20s or even 30s. And that's totally fine. You know, it's like, makes me think when I started college, um, you know, a, a lot of the students that were in that incoming freshman class with me, well, most of them, I, I guess I would say, <laughs> were actually uh, stronger musicians than I was, stronger instrumentalists, stronger improvisers. And, you know, I, I think I was kind of lucky because naturally my minds, my mindset, um, didn't really allow me allow for that situation to bother me too much. Um, I, I definitely saw people where if they were in a similar situation that I was, where they were sort of a low person on the totem pole that they were really perturbed and um, frustrated by that and, and, uh, it really bothered them. But in my mind, I'm kind of like, well, you know, we're just on different sections of this path here. And some people, depending on the training or what they were exposed to musically early on, they could, they could get further ahead just naturally without really even necessarily doing a, a ton of work, just like sort of by circumstance, you're able to get ahead and some of that is due to natural talent but a lot of it i think is actually due to your environment and what you're exposed to what you hear and the things that you learn early on Um, and not to say that i didn't and don't feel like i'm talented i i definitely do but that's such a you know a difficult thing to quantify and I think, you know, when I think back to that time, like I said, I was on the low end, but I stuck with it. And now, you know, a lot of the people that I was actually in school with at that time don't even play anymore for for various reasons. But I think the most important thing to take away is that, you know, if you stick with something and always try to learn and refine what you're doing and keep working hard and stick with it, especially over the long term, you can... Um, meet up or surpass um, people that seemed like they were um, that you would maybe never reach them early on Um, and you know I think it's what it it comes down to is the the story of the tortoise and the hare and I'm sure you know this but just in case not the (laughs) three sentence gist is just that a rabbit and a turtle were racing or a, a tortoise and the rabbit, um, has a lot of bursts of speed, but it will run fast and then stop. And then it will like take a nap under the tree. The, the tortoise continues at a steady pace, even though it's really slow. And the tortoise ends up winning the race because the hare isn't paying attention and isn't really focused on the race. And even though it has a faster top speed, it's not consistent and it falls behind and then isn't able to catch the tortoise at the end. That's the gist of it. Um, and so that having that mindset if you feel like you're maybe starting to uh compare or compete or you know just seeing how you line up with your classmates or friends or whoever that's really the most important thing is just going at your pace and and trying to be a sponge and learn all that you can that will help you to maybe go a little bit faster but it's not really about speed it's more it's definitely about consistency. And I'm going to be talking about consistency in particular in a, in a very specific way related to my practice routine. And I'm going to get into that a um, little bit later on, but um, I do want to mention since we're sort of here near the beginning and um, just a reminder in case for those of you who listened to the first episode already that I do have an email address dedicated to this podcast. So, um, if you have specific questions that you want to ask me or just comments or anything that you want to share, or just a way to get in touch with me, feel free to email saxophone journal at gmail.com and I'll see that. And what I'd like to do down the road is actually answer questions from listeners live on the podcast because I think, you know, a lot of people that will listen to this will have similar questions. And so don't feel, um, scared at all. Any questions valid, it can be, um, about music, saxophone, improvisation, learning music, practicing, or really anything. Cause I will be keeping it pretty open-ended. All right. Well, I'm recording this on January 31st and, um, although i have a lot going on and a lot of other things i i do actually need to do today (laughs) i wanted to stick with this because what i essentially committed to myself is i want to release one of these podcasts on the first day of each month and i thought that was a good time frame because it's going to allow me to sort of think back and reflect on the month and at the same time sort of reassess goals and, um, just think about the things that I wanted to do and sort of think like, okay, what did I get done? What didn't I get done? What's working and what's not. And I think sort of, um, looking at this through the lens of a new month each time that will help me figure out, okay, what pace can I actually do things? Um, and, yeah, so it's. I think it's helpful for both of those reasons, um, because a lot of times time can go by, and if we don't take the time to think back, it's hard to to actually plan in a meaningful way for the future if we're not looking back and seeing, okay, realistically, you know, what can I accomplish in say like two, three, or four weeks where am I on these other things that I'm trying to do? How much longer will it take? And all of that. Um, And especially, you know, if you are someone who is trying to be a musician or already is a musician, depending on what you do in music, you know, in in a lot of situations, we find ourselves actually being our own boss, which is definitely a double-edged sword. Um, If you, are not comfortable doing that. It's going to be really hard to get things done essentially. Um, but if you, if you really take the time to think about what you're doing and plan and find systems that work for you, then it can be great. It can be one of the best things. And I, I've definitely experienced both sides of that. And I need to make sure that I maintain awareness of that to actually make my time productive and, and make this all feasible and, and financially doable, but also, um, satisfying and, um, artistically fulfilling too. So yeah, there's a lot to think about and a lot to consider, but I like doing one of these like once a month. Cause I think that's a pretty good time frame. Um, I think if I waited longer, maybe like three months, it would be almost a little bit too long to really think back and you know like 3 months ago what you know exactly what was i doing how did i feel like my month went that would be a little bit more challenging but now i can look back and this whole last month of january is fairly clear and um it's <laughs> you know, actually I was thinking about how, how was I going to describe this month? And it's in a way it's felt like a bit of a whirlwind because actually on January 1st, when I woke up in the morning, I did not feel great. And I, my initial thought, well, actually, so like the night before on new year's Eve, I was hanging out at home. Um, and I'd been drinking coffee, uh, that day, I think I had like two or three cups. And I I've been phasing coffee out and actually I've had no coffee for the entire month of January, but I'm gonna get into that too. But so yeah, New Year's Eve, I'm hanging out at home. It was in the evening. Uh I think it was around ten PM or maybe like nine forty five or something. And I was like really just craving a burger and I was thinking like all right, where am I going to get a burger? So I was like, all right, I'm sure I'll get one at one of these restaurants, like close to my house. So I called this one bar slash restaurant. Well, I guess it's actually like a brewery, um, but they have good food. They have really good burgers. I called them and their kitchen had just closed. So it's like, all right. So I looked on, uh, I just put in like, well, I don't know if I put in like burger on Google maps, but I, you know, one of the next places on the list was Steak and Shake. And Steak and Shake was actually closed. The one near me is not 24 hours and they they were closed. So, man, I I was, I was really craving this burger to the extent that I was willing to go through the McDonald's drive-thru. I know. (laughs) I probably eat McDonald's, twice a year, maybe when I'm in, when it's in dire straits, when I succumb to that. Um, But it happened, it happened on New Year's Eve. And so I went there, got the burger, fries, came home, ate it. The next morning I woke up, felt really bad. And I was thinking to myself, like, man, that was some bad McDonald's. And then the day went on and I started feeling worse. I was like, man, that can't be the McDonald's that, uh, I'm sick. I'm, I'm definitely sick. So yeah. And so of course, you know, I started searching for places where I could get a COVID test. I couldn't find anything. The one place that looked promising was you could only sign up the day of, and you had to essentially sign up early in the morning or else all the spots were taken. And so I finally figured that out by, I think Sunday and I I was sick Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. I was finally able to sign up for a test. It was a rapid test and I tested positive for COVID. And then, um, I started to feel a little bit better on the Wednesday. So essentially I was sick for three days and then it sort of some of the symptoms sort of lingered for like two days after that. I think, um, it wasn't a super terrible case, but I was definitely like having a lot of chills, fever, aching, headache. Um, and then I got a sore throat afterwards that lasted for like a few days, but it wasn't like a really bad case, but it wasn't super mild either. Um so I unfortunately had to miss out on a a lot of gigs in those first 2 weeks of January. I was pretty laid up and which is always a bummer cuz it's like man at least I know for myself I'm one of those people where it's like oh man it's if it's like the start of a day or the start of a week especially like the start of a year it's like man I want to hit the ground running. I've got all, I've got this list, this to-do list all these things I want to be doing. And it's just like, Oh man, just to like slam on the brakes and to not know how long you're going to be out of it. Basically is just, it's a giant bummer. I mean, definitely could have been way worse. I could have ended up up in the hospital or like who knows, but, um, I never lost taste or smell. I mean, it overall, it, it wasn't, it wasn't absolutely, uh, terrible, but, um, Yeah. So, and I remember that in my last podcast and when I was sort of looking ahead into January, I was thinking like, you know what? I want to take a break from TV. (laughs) Well, getting sick is not what you want to have happen if you're trying to take a break from TV, because all you want to do, like you don't even want to try to read or do anything. You just want to lay there and either be asleep or you need something to just like keep your mind active so that you're, you're not just like your mind is, isn't just like running free from laying there all day. It's like it it needs something to, to stimulate it or to keep it occupied after essentially no stimulation for the entire day. So I did end up, um, watching a, a, a little bit of TV, although it, overall, if I look at the whole month, it was much less than I had been watching. So I ended up perusing HBO and I found this show and I was feeling like fairly picky with like what I was going to watch. Like nothing was really striking my fancy. And I was just thinking like, yeah, you know, I, I just need something like really original and just like not, that's not the, like the rehash of like, so many things that we see now and you know what I found that thing. There's a show on HBO called how to with John Wilson and that show blew my mind. It was hilarious, incredibly original. And I'm so glad I found it because I essentially binged two seasons of it. Um, I think I did to Like the, while I was sick and I would definitely recommend that one. I, I mean, it seems like it's, I'm glad it's on HBO. So I, you know, a lot of people will find it, but I'm also worried that a lot of people just might not find it uh, naturally because it wasn't popping up. Like I hadn't seen it or heard about it. I mean, again, I don't, consume a huge amount of media. So I don't always know what the new shows are that are coming out. Like a lot of people are always like sort of tracking that stuff. I tend to uh, intentionally uh, avoid that just because I I don't want to get sucked into every single thing, which, you know, can happen. And I, I guess in a way I sort of try to like guard my free time to some extent because again it goes along with like being your own boss and it's like after a while you can justify like oh you know i worked this x amount i'm fine to watch like this much tv or entertain myself you know with any sort of like media and i that can be a slippery slope so a lot of times i try to like go cold turkey and stay off of netflix or, or whatever streaming sites just because it is so easy to get sucked in. And there is a lot of great stuff in there that's worth seeing. But I mean, you just have to realize you have a finite amount of time and it's like, how do you want to spend that time? So, um, yeah. How to with John Wilson was very good. And, um, that may be one of those shows where I, I need to make an I might need to make an exception and whenever the third season comes out, go ahead and then watch it. Um, but I'm glad to find these sort of niche things that are very different. And I, I guess in certain ways, like the whole streaming service and producers are sort of taking a risk on things like this because it is so different. It's not a sure thing that you're going to have a large audience that is going to be excited to consume something like this, but I love it. I love finding things like that. That's, um, yeah, it's such a thrill for me. And, um, yeah, I won't go into explaining that show too much, but I would encourage you to check it out. There is also, um, the office TV show, the American version, came out with on the peacock streaming service they came out with these super fan episodes which are they don't they don't show every episode in the series but a lot of them and they include the deleted scenes so I, when I think maybe originally the episodes were around 20 to 25 minutes long now the episodes are more like 35 to 30 or 35 to 45 minutes long. And so, um, it's, you know, Emily has always been really into the office and so she told me about this. And so we, we've been watching some of that, um, which is very interesting for a lot of reasons. But I think one of the big things is that you, you know, you sort of you sort of wish some of the scenes had been in there cause they're so good. And then others you're like, wow, that's kind of interesting. And, and a lot of times it's like if somebody is sort of doing something out of character, you can see that it doesn't really make sense and you can understand why it could be cut. Um, but fascinating also to think, I always assumed that they had when they filmed this stuff, they had really trimmed the fat and they're only filming the stuff that will make it into the episode. Like for sure. But that's not the case. I, they really had a, a ton of extra material for every episode. And I just never, I never thought TV shows did that. I thought they were like, this is our script. This is what's working. Boom, we gotta go shoot it because we have limited time and like limited resources. And, you know, we only have like this big of a budget so we know we can only f- film with these musicians, or <laughs> musicians, actors for a certain amount of time. Um, but yeah, that was uh, very interesting and I just love like learning little behind the scenes, things like that in, in, uh, creative process processes, I guess that are, that you may not be aware of, you know, when you're just consuming something in its final form. Um, but man, I mean, I don't know how many shows would be comfortable doing this. I would almost love to see like um and even more like in-depth documentary or almost like a sister episode to each episode in the series where it's like they are showing the process like in the writers room and maybe rehearsal with the actors and showing how the actors learn their lines and practice their material and get into the headspace of filming and like what all the producers have to do and like the showrunners I you know, it would just be amazing. I mean, I, I almost feel like there's not like, there's no way of, of getting too much information about the process because it's almost, uh, sort of, uh, reaffirming for someone who is, you know, I guess in the creative field of, of making things. And it's good to know that, you know, they, They have a lot of material and they don't know exactly what's going to work and what isn't going to work so they just film it and just get a bunch of it ready up front and then they then they sort of look at it through the lens of okay what's going to work in terms of this season and the series and these characters and and then we got to let the rest go um that's an interesting an interesting thing. And it could be like a useful tool in terms of even thinking about like recording an album. Um, it's like a lot of times when you go into the studio, you don't necessarily know how things are going to work together or how it's going to end up sounding. But it, I guess that's a useful thing to, to think is that it's better to have a little bit more material and then you can always trim it down later. But yeah, so I guess those were the two main TV shows and like I said, I've definitely watched a lot less TV in general this month. than I, I think I had probably overall in the last year, if I go through month by month, but so what I am am glad about is that I've gotten more into reading, which is something that I've been wanting to do. And um, so I finished up the um great book by John Green called The Anthropocene Reviewed and that book was was a, a just a pure pleasure to read. I mean John is such a great writer and just so clear and eloquent and it's it's a quick read and it will well for me it made me laugh out loud and cry and just it's it's like you learn things and you feel things at the same time <laughs> and it's it was to the point where I, like I would finish one chapter I mean each chapter it's like on a different topic I would finish one chapter and say it would like make me have tears in my eyes and then I would start the next one and I would then I would it would be so funny I would actually be laughing while I still had tears in my eyes from the previous chapter. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's really great. And, um, yeah, if you're not into the Vlogbrothers, check out the Vlogbrothers on YouTube. It's John Green and his brother Hank. And they did this thing of many, many years ago where they started this YouTube channel. And since they lived in different cities, they decided they weren't going to talk or talk text each other, but then said they were going to communicate by each creating a YouTube video every other day and then sharing that. And they just kept that going forever. Now they do it like they each make one video, uh, once a week and they're great. They're they're Yeah. It's, it's always like super interesting to follow them. And so they, they put out books and do all these other their projects as well. Um, So yeah, The Anthropocene Reviewed, very good. And then I also read um, a book called The Archer, and that was Paulo Coelho, who, I think that's his name, if I'm getting that right. And he's the guy who also wrote The Alchemist, which is another great book. The Archer was very good. It was a very fast read. I think I read it in like two hours. It's kind of a smaller book, And it's more, I guess it's more of like a, maybe it'd be considered a parable, but it reminded me a little bit of the book called Zen and the Art of Archery, which is another one of my favorites. Um, But yes, essentially getting into that, I guess it's a sort of a beginner way of, starting to think about the Zen mindset. Um, But yeah, Apollo Quayle is another incredibly eloquent writer and um, just has a great way of like getting to the heart of a matter. And uh, yeah, uh, definitely, I would definitely recommend that one as well. And then I'm currently reading a book called What Makes Sammy Run. And the author on this one, I don't remember. I think it's Bud something, but it's an easy book to find. I guess it was, a, or it's been a hit for a while, but it was written. Uh, I think it was like maybe 1930s. Um, I'm really enjoying this book too. It's very much, well, it sort of puts you back in that time period. Um, and it's a very like distinct writing style as well, but I'm really enjoying the, like the story and the way and the way he writes. And it's funny and also uh, somewhat satirical and really sort of like puts the lens on certain behaviors within human nature and how people um, like to try to get ahead and I'm really interested to see where it goes and how it ends. Um, so yeah, I've, I was, um, having a nice routine where I was always reading in the evenings for about an hour or two instead of watching TV. And I was keeping that up like, I don't know, maybe for like a week or two. And so yeah, I like that. I guess like the hard part is a lot of times in the evenings, if I've worked all day. It's just like, I just want to allow my brain to completely zone out and I just want to like sit there and relax. And reading does take a some effort. It's, and like, I guess, hopefully it's, it can be act, like enjoyable effort and it's not like, um, hard manual labor or something, but it's like, it, it feels like it's worth it and I know it's always worth it, but the thing is I, I need it. If it's going to be taking the place of TV, it needs to be enjoyable and relaxing too. I, I suppose it can't just be like continuing the hard work of if I've been working hard during the day, just like I can't do that every waking hour uh, or else I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, screw it. <laughs> like I'm just like chilling today or something. So I have to have the balance and um, be able to be able to avoid burnout. And that's one of the things that I'm always just trying to be aware of. And so finding those books where it's still enjoyable, but I, I'm learning and hopefully growing and getting a lot out of it. So, yeah. Um, I guess the other big thing that has, I guess is different for me in January is that I've been teaching a bit more at Butler University, which is where I teach adjunct in the jazz department. And, um, I really enjoy it. I've, I've live fairly close to Butler, which is one of the nice things I can drive there in seven minutes, (laughs) which is, I guess a good, again, like a sort of a good and bad thing. It's like, I just got to make sure I leave early enough. So I'm not cutting in too close. And when I get there and for whatever reason, it's like a college visitation day or like an audition weekend, like the parking garage is full and then I like can't find a space and then I'm like rushing, you know, but for most of the time it's fine. And a lot of the students are, man, it's always so cool. Like there'll be like this, like 19 year old student and they will just be like so smart, so mature have these all like developed really like well thought out ideas. And it always like just shocks me a little bit because I was not like that. <laughs> so it's, I almost have to remember like, listen, these kids, well, I call them kids that they're not kids. They're just young adults. But I have to remember that they're probably further along in, in a lot of ways than I was. And I can't just think like, I'm just talking to my idiot 19 year old self, which I sort of was. Um, And so I'm doing the I'm doing a jazz combo and it's the same combo I had last semester. They meet on Fridays and then I'm also teaching jazz arranging class which meets Tuesday Thursdays. And uh, yeah, it's great and it's always great to like find different ways of getting the students involved and especially in the ranging class, getting them, participating and maybe doing a little bit of playing their instruments to like try out different examples of things um and because man once you find that that moment where like the light bulb goes off for someone or you sense that they've they have that spark of creativity and interest then it's like then that's the best that's the best feeling you don't and you know that's not always guaranteed from class to class or student to student but if i'm doing my job well i feel like i now I'm, i sort of have a sense of how to create those moments a little bit more and not be so strict and structured where it's i'm just like lecturing and feeding them information or just um regurgitating what's in the book but really staying open and i guess you know not just really allowing my personality but allowing my experiences to come out in the classes and uh, mixing that in with giving them a structured environment where it's like, yes, I need you guys to really put in the work and devote yourselves to these topics, and I can help guide you to do that. But we're also going to try to make this interesting and fun, and and hopefully just light that fire of creativity, because um, there are a lot of lessons that I remember from college, specifically to this day, and and specific things professors said and professors that inspired me in all sorts of different ways. And that's the thing is like when you're at at that age of high school and college and a little beyond, it's, I think a lot of those things stick and certain moments can really remain in your mind forever. And so, yeah, those are the, the sorts of things that I try to remind myself because it's an important time and, um, the students have really, you know, they've decided I'm, I'm going to be in this music program. And it's important that I just do my best and try to really, like, help them out as as much as I possibly can. Um, so, yeah, that's what's been going on with January. I've also been doing a lot of practicing. um you know, obviously once I started feeling better, it's like, okay, I gotta get the chops back again. Gotta get ready to gig and feel comfortable on my horn and just get that ball rolling again. Um, I'm recording in March with a trio and just trying to hash out that music, practice it and compose the rest of it. Um, so yeah. That's, I guess, there's not much else to mention in terms of January, so we can get into the first main topic of today, which is going to be saxophone sound. And before we do that, I'm going to grab a drink of water and allow my vocal cords to rest for just a moment. Okay, two quick things I forgot to mention um, before we get into the saxophone sound stuff. Um, first is that two nights ago, I heard this really great concert. Um, and I wanted to let you know, in case you wanted to check out the group. So, um, if you are really into the classical saxophone world, you probably already know this, but there's this really awesome saxophone quartet called prism quartet. And I heard. Um, A brand new piece um, is actually composed by a great local composer here in Indianapolis, James Aikman. And it was his piece written for orchestra and saxophone quartet. And so it was the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra um, along with the Prism Quartet. And this is actually the first time I had heard both groups. And so getting to hear them play together was really cool. And the piece was was great. I really enjoyed it. It was very engaging. Um, but very, you know, it was like uh, modern, um, modern classical music, not super avant-garde, but uh, very... Um, I don't know, I guess pretty original um and yeah, I had heard some other of James Aikman's stuff, and I'm man, uh awesome to hear that something like that live, and I was sitting in like the fifth row right in front of the saxophone quartet. It was great. I had the best seats in the house. I could hear everything and see everything really well um and w- one of the cool things about the quartet is that two of the people that actually played on the concert were not normal members of the group. And I have the program here, so I just want to let you know who was playing saxophone. So on soprano, it was Julian Velasco, and he was filling in for Tim McAllister. And so Tim is the normal soprano player. but Julian played great, I, and I'd never heard of him before, and so now I'm glad to have another saxophone player to check out. And then on alto saxophone, it was Zachary Shiman. Um, man, great sound, smooth as butter, <laughs> just like very, very man, very cool to listen to. Um, then you know throughout the piece, they all had little, little souls where you could hear them individually really well. And that was just, it was really cool. And then on, um, tenor, um, actually filling in, uh, for the main tenor player was Otis Murphy, which was really cool. Cause I've actually known Dr. Murphy for a long time because he was, I think he maybe started, uh, I think he started teaching at IU maybe just like a couple of years before I started there as an undergrad. And so, you know, I didn't have a lot of interaction with him at that time, but I got to hear him play some back then. And, and it was just really, you know, it's always inspiring to be around such a high level player like that. And so he was actually playing tenor and I think he typically mainly plays alto and I'd never heard him play tenor and to hear that live, um, man, just like pretty mind blowing. I'm not, to be honest, I'm not even really that into classical saxophone and not to say that I don't like the music. It's more that I'm, um, i guess i just like don't really know a lot about the genre or the music or the pieces i mean i know a lot of the major pieces of course but i haven't taken the time to do to dig very deeply into the players and the music and history and so mostly i just try to appreciate what i do here and learn from it and enjoy it but to hear otis murphy play tenor man his sound was something that i Maybe had not exactly heard before. It was just super, super dark, clear, clean, smooth, um, and and um, yeah, just very moving to hear him play. And then the Berry player was Tamer Sullivan, I think that's how you pronounce it, and he's the main barry player in the group, and he was great as well. Um, the quartet played awesome together and i'm really glad that i was able to go they actually scheduled this concert two years ago and then it got postponed because of covid and so i'm glad they were finally able to make it happen and i would love to hear hear them play again especially like with an orchestra it's just so cool the mixture of instruments and how you can build a piece and especially with like a group like that standing in front of an orchestra a saxophone quartet and a chamber orchestra it's like man, the saxophone quartet can almost hold their own volume wise with the orchestra, especially when they're out front like that, because they can just produce so much sound. They, I guess you could say they could like bury the strings. They can almost bury the whole woodwind section. And I think the brass that were playing in the orchestra, I think it was only two French horns and two trumpets. I don't, think there was a trombone on, on this concert. I couldn't see the back of the orchestra very well, very well, but so, you know, the saxophones could hold their own against the brass. So it's like, they, there was never a time when you're worried that you're not going to hear the saxophones. So, um, yeah, <laughs> really interesting, really, really enjoyable concert. Um, so yeah. And one other thing to note, if you, if you don't know about the Prism Quartet, they actually have recorded with a lot of the prominent jazz saxophone players. They've done things with Miguel Zanon, Chris Potter, Joe Lovano, Ravi Coltrane, I think maybe Melissa Aldana as well. Um, But yeah, yeah, check them out and check out all those players for sure. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was that, um, you know, along with my Butler teaching, I've been teaching a lot in my virtual studio. Um, if you're not aware of this, you can check out, I've got a page online that, that essentially runs you through what it is. And then there's a short video short sort of showing you inside the studio, but you can find that at Sean and Bowden virtual And essentially it's a, it's a site of lessons, courses um, and and forums and communities and ways of being in touch with me and getting feedback from me about music. And especially in terms of like learning improvisation, working on tunes, Um, you don't have to be a saxophone player to be in there, but a lot of it is saxophone specific. Um, So yeah, I've been doing that. Every Friday I send an email to all of the virtual studio members And I let them know like what the new material is in the studio because I upload new content and lessons every week. And so, yeah, I'm always spending a good chunk of my time working on that. So if you're interested in that, check it out or just shoot me me a message if you have any questions. All right. So let's dig into this first major topic that I want to cover and try to go really in depth with, which is saxophone sound and in particular I want to talk about how I get and work on my sound Um, and to do so I think it's gonna be useful to actually dig into my background and history as a player because it's gonna short sort of demonstrate how I arrived at the point that I'm at now And everybody sort of has a different path. And I think it's useful because, you know, if you're like 20 years old or 30 or 40 or 50, wherever you are in your path, I think one thing to understand is that there's a lot more to learn and and there's always more to experience. And you may not know exactly where you're going to end up in terms of your playing style and the sound that you want to produce and are able to produce. And I think understanding that and sort of being open to changes in your journey um, or twists and turns in your path, that's going to help you uh, actually to stay on the journey. Because a lot of times it's... um, I see a lot of people maybe either getting stuck and essentially sounding the same. They maybe like get their sound when they're like 25 or 30 and just stick with it, even though maybe it could use some improvement. Um, and (laughs) when I think back uh, on the journey I've had so far, it's almost like my sound has changed so much mostly out of necessity, not because I really wanted it to, but because of uh, my circumstances and I'm going to get into all of it. So yeah, I started on clarinet the summer before sixth grade, because as you may may know, I don't know if I've really talked about this. My dad is, is a woodwind player. He plays all the woodwinds, flute, clarinet, saxophone, oboe, bassoon, and English horn and like the other flutes you know he's played all of them piccolo alto flute bass flute and the different clarinets and all the different saxophones so he <laughs> he really knows his stuff and he started me on clarinet and I was playing clarinet in school band and that's all I was doing at first I wasn't doing any saxophone um, and I think it was when I was in eighth grade my dad was like in touch with the band director. He's like, Hey, you know what, what if I come in and play on a concert with you guys and maybe Sean could play as well. And like, we could do a solo together. And so we ended up doing that. And so he sort of got me into playing alto saxophone. I think like when I was in eighth grade, because I remember there are pictures of us at this concert and we're standing up in front of the eighth grade band. He's got his tenor and I've got my alto. (laughs) And I, I might actually still have this, but my dad at the time wrote out little mini, like four bar solos for me to play. And it was like, one of them was on the tune tequila. <laughs> and uh, there was another one, I think on it, like another tune, but yeah. And he, he wrote me like different options. He's like, here's four different ones you can choose from. <laughs> it was so cool. And I may still have those. I need to try to find them. Cause I think I did try to keep them. Um, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to take a sip of my tea here for a second. All right. I don't talk this much typically on a given day-to-day basis, so my vocal cords don't have the endurance. They need to get through a multi-hour talk, <laughs> but we'll get there. So, yeah, I, I did a little bit of alto in eighth grade, and then when I got in high school, um, they had two jazz bands. They had the main jazz band, which actually had a class period um, during the day. And uh, and they had the, the second jazz band, which was at that time just after school, like uh, maybe, I don't know if it was once a week or multiple times a week. I don't remember. But yeah, so I was in the second one. I was going to the after school rehearsals. And in that group, uh, they actually needed me to play tenor. So I don't remember exactly when it was, but my, I'm sure my dad got me into playing tenor uh, so that I could be in that band. And so I played in that for one year. And then my sophomore year, I switched to the, the first jazz ensemble, which m- met during the day. And I was playing alto and I was playing lead alto by that time. Cause I was, I was more comfortable on saxophone and I was able to get the lead alto spot. And then I played lead alto sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school. And then I was also playing, still playing clarinet pretty heavily in wind ensemble and, and doing solos for like the, the state solo contests and all that stuff. Um, yeah, that's, so that's what was going on during that time period. And then when I went to college, I was, still playing a lot of clarinet and saxophone and I was always playing lead alto. Um, I think I played lead alto every year during my undergrad in all the different jazz bands at IU. Um, and still during that time playing a lot of clarinet and I was saying clarinet lessons, uh, as well. And also flute lessons. I started, doing flute lessons in in college. So I was like adding doubles and yeah, after my undergrad, I got hooked up with the show blast. And when I went to blast, they, the way their show is designed, they actually have like this, this like sort of, uh, lead saxophone soloist in the show, but it's a tenor spot and i hadn't really been playing tenor but i was able to get that spot just because i was the most experienced jazz player in the group um they had a mixture of players they had classical and jazz players and so then i played tenor for that and then after that show that's when i decided to go to grad school in new york and study with antonio hart at queen's college and so i was back to playing a lot of alto for that and i didn't really play tenor much at all in grad school. Um, and after grad school, so I actually only did grad school for like a year and a half because of the way the program's designed, they have it. So you can, you can graduate after three semesters. And so after that, I went back to blast again for another tour. And so I was back on tenor again and Uh oh, I'm trying to remember. So after blast the second time. That's weird because I thought I was. I think I went back to New York. And then it was when I was in New York that somebody sent me a thing from this Broadway touring company. And it was for the show Hairspray. And so yeah, Hairspray was the first show that I did. And for that book, um, I believe I was just playing tenor because there were two saxophones and the first chair had tenor and alto. And then I was the second saxophone book and I think mine was just tenor. So in that book, I actually had some solos as well on tenor and when I was checking out the recording and I went and shadowed the Broadway pit in New York and heard the guys play and, you know, they're doing like a lot of altissimo, a lot of kind of like rock pop solos. And I was like, man, I really got to get my tenor happening to even just to be able to pull this stuff off. And so, um, one of the things that I did then to sort of help my ears, just get a stronger hold on tenor and really try to work get my sound happening. I just made a playlist and really started digging into tenor players much more so than I had. Um, And, you know, I guess I should just give a little bit more background on what I was into on alto. Um, Sorry, I'm going to have some more tea here. when I was in high school, I, I really was into cannibal. And then by the time I got into college, I was introduced to Kenny Garrett. So I was a Kenny Garrett fiend in college. And he's like all I listened to for like a year or two years. And I really tried to copy his sound and his style. So that's sort of where I was coming from. And then on tenor, it was, I was just kind of like, you know, I need to have some, I need to have a more of like a tenor guiding light. I, you know, I need to try to get out of my Kenny Garrett phase. Um, And actually studying with Antonio at Queens helped a little bit with that because he had me go back into getting into like some Johnny Hodges on alto. So it sort of helped me detox a little bit from my Kenny Garrett overdose. Um, So yeah, so with Tenor, one of the big players that really stood out to me when I first got into Tenor was Seamus Blake and I was really I remember when I was like on the tour bus all the time on that first tour of Hairspray I had this playlist and I had um, edited a lot of Seamus Blake tunes so it so I would just have the solo so I could just listen to his solos like on repeat and so that really helped me get into his sound figure out how he was playing and articulating and approaching the horn. Um, and uh, certainly uh, sort of digesting his his improvisational concept as well. How he played over changes, how he sort of intrinsically phrased his solos. Um, but, you know, he's got a great sound. He's a, he's a great player. Um, and I learned a lot by doing a lot of heavy listening on him. And then at some point... I don't really know what caused this. Um, I I think probably just out of curiosity, I just started, I just kept trying to listen and find other players and just to help learn more. And, you know, obviously it's an enjoyable process to just go sort of like treasure hunting and just try to find those gems of players and tunes and solos that you that really do it for you. And I started getting really into... Um, a lot of other people. So uh, there's Rich Perry, who, if you don't know him, he's probably one of the most underrated tenor players out there. He plays in the Maria Schneider Orchestra and he's recorded a ton of solo albums. Um, so he's one of the guys that i also went really heavily into. Also, George Garzone. Um, and I guess I should say with like, with Rich Perry, you know, it, a lot of things about him really struck me like his sound, but also his style. I feel like is very original and organic. And, um, you know, I felt that way with Garzone as well. Garzone sort of developed his own thing coming out of the Coltrane experience and you know, you can find him talking a lot about that online. But um, Garzone's sound to me is is pretty mind blowing, and I actually ended up taking one lesson with him when I was back in Indianapolis. Um, I don't. This may have been. So yeah, I, I I just to get to fast forward just a little bit. I was on the road with a. A few shows for about six years, different shows. Then I went back to New York to play the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. And then I think it after that when I went back to Indy, I think that's around the time when I had my lesson with Garzone. And he was just coming into Indy to play a concert at one of the colleges. And I saw that and I messaged him and I was like, Hey, could I please have a lesson? You know, I'm trying to work on my sound and your sound is crazy. <laughs> And I would love to like pick your brain. And he was like, yeah, he was really nice. He had me come to his hotel where he was staying and he had his horn out. And I still kick myself because I think I record. Well, I know I recorded it on my old iPhone, but then at some point I lost the recording or it got deleted or something because I've never been able to find it. But that's, that's okay because I think I actually remember the key elements of the lesson. Um, and it was interesting because one of the first, like right off the bat, he said, could you play a high B and just hold out a B at a really soft dynamic? I was like, yeah, sure. And, uh, I, I had, you know, I'd been doing my research on Garzone and, and looking him up and, trying to learn about his approach and mindset. And I, so I knew he was already really into long tones. So I had been doing a lot of long tones and I was like, Oh yeah, I got this. I'm ready. And I hold out my B and then he does his same note, same really soft volume. And he's like, hear how my note is just like a lot more stable and yours has like a little bit of wavering. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I hear it. He's like, okay. So that's one of the things you can sort of like work on is just trying to like stabilize that. Um, but one of the things that was crazy about Garzone sound and getting to hear it in person in like a little hotel room was that it was just like, he would be like playing really like a soft subtone, but it just felt like this freight train was just moving through the room. It It's just like this thick, like low rumble that was just so strong, even though it was quiet, it was just like powerful and just like, such a force. And he told me he plays, I believe it was a 10 star mouthpiece with a four hard read. So that's just freaking crazy. I mean, that's such a hard setup. But he also told me that he gets up at 4am to do long tones. <laughs> so, oh yeah. And one of the other things he mentioned was that he studies with Zen masters. And, um, so he's, he is an enigma and, you know, not a lot of people have really taken the instrument and the sound in particular to the level that he has and to sort of experience that and hear that and just try to get some insight and a little bit of his perspective was super helpful. Um, and actually he has... I think over the pandemic, he's put out a few YouTube videos talking about some of these same things, and I would definitely recommend them. They're, you know, because they help give you some of these same insights that I was able to glean from him during our lesson. Um, So I was kind of like, man, I want this, like, big dark tenor sound, and I, you know, so I'm going to try to get maybe a little closer to his setup, even though I know I can't go all out with like a 10 star and a four hard read, like I just wouldn't be able to even play that. So I think, and I don't remember again, how I came into playing Jody jazz pieces for the first time. Um Cause I was playing Van Doren on alto. Maybe it was just because Garzone was playing Jody jazz. Maybe that's what got me into it. I think that may have been it. Cause I had been playing, I had some Van Van Doren metal pieces that I was playing on tenor during Hairspray. And then... Yeah, I got into the hard rubber Jody Jazz, most likely because of knowing that Carzone was playing them. And so I had... I think the biggest piece that I had was an 8-star. So I had that, and then I was... You know, I think I was always playing, like, the Blue Box Van Doren. For some reason, I always seemed to like those a little bit more than the Rico, even though Garz- I remember Garzon specifically telling me, like, yeah, the Rico, or now the Diodario Jazz Select just works so well with the the Jody Jazz pieces. I always felt like I could get a little bit darker and a little bit more core with the traditional Van Doren. So... Um, yeah, I had the eight star, and then I I remember I think I was playing three and a half traditional Van Dorans on the eight star Jody Jazz. And actually, if you listen to like the first Tugger Brothers album, Nine is the Magic Number, um, I'm pretty sure that's the exact setup that I was playing. And that's on my balanced action Selmer. And I think I was using a Francois Louis, Louis Ligature uh, at that time as well with that setup. And I remember, you know, I still, during that time, even when we recorded that album, I still felt very new to tenor. And I was just like, man, this is what it takes. I was like, I'm going to be like Garzone, play this really hard setup, just get this huge sound. And I was busting my butt before that session, some serious long tone and technique work just to really be able to play play the setup, play it in tune and make it through the tunes and especially be able to play the melodies and, you know, try to do it well. And I'm happy with how I sounded on that album. And you can listen back and hear that exact setup. And I, I really liked how I was able to sound. I feel, I mean, I always feel like I can, it can be better, but I feel like I pulled it off. And I remember some people, um, some good saxophone players hearing that. And I remember getting a nice compliment from my old teacher at IU, Tom Walsh, you know, and he wasn't even aware that I had been playing tenor, I think. And he heard, he was like, man, tenor sounds awesome. And and so that was very validating. I felt like, okay, I'm I'm making this work. And then I also got a super nice compliment from Walter Smith III. Because he he was teaching at IU um, during that time, and I had met him. just briefly before that, maybe a couple of times, and he emailed me and he said, man, I heard, I was listening in on the radio and I heard this band and I was like, I didn't, I was like, who's that tenor player? He's like, I didn't know who that was. He was like, I thought it was this one other person. And I was like, man, they've been practicing. I was like, then he said like, no, it couldn't be that person. And he was like, man, that. and he was like, yeah, your sound was awesome he's like, it sound, sound was, or I think he said, your sound is incredible. I was like, oh man, like for Walter to say that. Okay. It's like, this is great. You know, it's like really working out. Like I'm, I'm getting to hang of tenor. I don't play like Kenny Garrett anymore. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's going well. Okay. I'm going to take another drink. Okay, so after that recording I was you know obviously super happy. That was my first big recording that I jazz recording in a in a studio that I had done and and uh say so yeah, I think I was I think I was like maybe 31 at that time. Um so like yeah, it, you know mostly in my 20s I had just been playing um the broadway stuff the broadway pit orchestra stuff and so now i was like really getting into playing more jazz which was what i've I'd been wanting to do that's sort of a separate issue and that'd be maybe too much to talk about but i want to stick to the the saxophone sound um journey for 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 now but yeah so after that recording, I was just getting, just trying to keep it going, and I was always kind of like, man, I'm going to work up to like Gar- Garzone's setup, and sort of thinking that, you know, I wanted to keep getting a bigger mouthpiece and maybe a harder read and just see if I can try to get there. Um, you know, and there's, if you haven't checked out much Garzone, I mean, I think his he sounds different, like on some of his albums like his earlier albums he's playing a six and maybe like even maybe a metal mouthpiece but then he so you know definitely do your research and especially getting into his later stuff so there's one i heard there's an album he recorded with some collegiate big man i think maybe in australia and they record the tune body and soul and his sound on that recording is crazy it's 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 mind-blowing. That would be one to check out. I, I forget the name of the group or the album, but you, I'm sure you can find it. And then, yeah, just some of his later recordings. There's Trio Paz, or Paz, I think it's P-A-Z, and they, they do the tune Gentle Rain. He sounds amazing on that album. Um, but yeah, you know, just dig into it. He hasn't recorded a ton, I don't think, in recent years, but there are... Recordings out there of, of him that you can find where I think his sound is just like, just just great, um, and you know I was also getting into a lot of other people like Ravi Coltrane. I was always really into Chris Potter as well and Branford Marsalis, um, even a little bit of Joe Lovano. I had always been a big Joshua Redmond fan as well, um, and. Yeah, so after that first recording, I remember it was during this time that, oh, well, I should actually maybe back up just a little bit. So when I was at Radio City, um, which is before I went back to Indy to, and you know joined this Tucker Brothers group and started playing a lot more jazz, I was talking with um, one of the other woodwind players, um, who was, of a, a, um, just one of the elders in the scene, just very experienced. He had played in Maria Schneider's orchestra back in the day. And he's a super knowledgeable woodwind player. And so he was, he was listening to me, like, I think warm up one day. He's like, you know, I can tell you're kind of biting. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I'm like a, he's like, my ears are so zeroed in on this stuff. I'm like a, a detective. I can just zoom in and I know, I just know what's happening. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, what, what can you show me? And, and he was like, well, there's this one thing you can try. Like when you play, try lifting, lifting your upper lip off of the mouthpiece and then blow and see if you can make the sound happen. And I did that. I was like, okay, that's crazy and really hard. And I'm like, barely able to make a sound. And then he's like, the other thing you can do is like, when you're both your lips are on the mouthpiece, like you're playing, you can stick your two fingers on the sides of your, the corners of your mouth so that the corners aren't touching the mouthpiece and then blow. And essentially what those two exercises showed me is that I was relying a lot on the the pressure I was creating with my embouchure around the mouthpiece and not allowing the airstream to move properly. So what was happening was I was biting just enough and not really being aware of it. um, To the point where I was constricting the sound and not really playing in a way that was going to allow me to have a full sound. And uh, the other thing that I was doing was I was actually rolling my bottom lip in all the way because my foundation of an embouchure was on clarinet. And so I was essentially playing like a classical clarinet embouchure on saxophone. And um, so it was basically like right after Radio City, I I remember I I bought myself a Mark Six tenor and I right away, it was like the next day I started experimenting with embouchure things. I was like, you know, I think this guy, he really knows what he's talking about. Um and I want to try it out because what i noticed in those first few days of practicing and messing around with the amateur was i would roll my bottom lip out and i could get this whole new palette of sound Um, and i was like holy cow like when you play for a long time you kind of get used to what you hear in terms of the sound and your your brain is like all right this is what i sound like and there's you know there's nothing new that's going to be coming out of that bell but to have like such a dynamic change of tone quality. And it wasn't all like great. It was a little on the harsh side because I, I wasn't able to really control it. But I could see um, like the depth of and, and breadth of sound that I could get had just fully opened up just by simply rolling out my bottom lip. And at the same time, I started experimenting with this awareness of biting and trying not to bite down with my upper teeth, but more just trying to let the upper teeth rest. And it was challenging because essentially I'm making two major changes there. Um, One, rolling out that bottom lip means that the reed is, is really just sitting in like a whole different way and doesn't have that anchor of the bottom teeth that are really pushing in more and then trying not to push down with the top teeth too at the same it was just like man there's a lot happening here this is tricky and it's going to take me some time to figure this out um so after that when i went back to indianapolis and and hooked up with like the tucker brothers and this was right before our the first album i was talking about I was, I had able to solidify the idea of rolling the bottom lip out, but I think to compensate with that and to allow that change to happen, I was still, without really being fully aware of it, I was still biting a little bit too much with my top teeth just to help anchor it and, and allow the embouchure to, to set and take form. Um, So after we recorded that first album, I was like, really motivated. And I just gotten those nice compliments from really good players. And um, yeah, I was feeling good about it. And I was practicing a lot. And especially I was practicing to try to get my altissima really, really happening. And it was, and I actually, I even remember like playing gigs and even on that first album, you can hear I'm playing altissima up to like high C's. I remember on, I had worked up to like a high D and I could even like really move around in the altissimo pretty um, confidently and, and and fairly well um, and i remember one day i was just like really doing some heavy uh altissimo practice work at home and all of a sudden i had this shooting pain in my top teeth and i was like whoa <laughs> i stopped for a second i was like that's i've never felt that before you know what was that and i I was thinking, you know, that must be a weird fluke. Like, I don't know. So I went right back to practicing and then it happened again. And I stopped and, you know, I was, I was pretty freaked out because I was thinking like, what? I'm like, am I practicing too long? Or like, what is like, what's causing this? What's the issue? And I realized that the only thing that it could really be is this pressure that I'm putting up into my top teeth. And that made me think like, wow, I must still be biting. And even with my bottom lip rolled out, so that I knew that was good, and the sound was was going well, you know, I uh, to allow myself to actually produce a sound with this hard setup, the eight star, and three and a half traditional like this is a tough setup. So like I was, with my embouchure, I was still biting to compensate for um, mainly like not having the proper airstream or embouchure muscle strength that should actually support the lips rather than the teeth biting in and, and holding down like a clamp. So um, yeah, after that, um, I had to take a good, hard look at what I was doing and essentially had to um, try to rebuild my embouchure um, from, from the ground up. And the main thing that I did, I think after that, I was like, you know, maybe one of the things that's contributing to this is that I'm just trying to play on a setup that's too hard. Um, and so I was like, okay, I think right after that, I went and bought a Jody jazz piece that was a little bit smaller. I think I bought maybe it's an eight or possibly a seven star. And then I think maybe I bumped down a read strength. I don't remember exactly when, when it all happened, but I got to the, I found a, a setup that I could play where I was very careful that my upper teeth were just resting on the top of the mouthpiece and Um, not digging in. So I was actually playing and um, I was playing so that I, I had a mouthpiece patch on the top, but my teeth were not actually creating an indentation into the mouthpiece patch. So I was that, that light on the top. I was, it was really just resting and not pressure going down. I still had my um, bottom lip rolled out. And it was very hard to play like this. Like I couldn't even play like barely above like a G above the staff because I was so conditioned to play that up there. When I, when I needed to go up there, you know, I was just, I was biting and I didn't really know how to do it with air and just embouchure strength that was, that was built in. Um, That would just bite a little bit, just like I always had on clarinet and alto. And when I first started tenor, and I, would, I could just play up as high as I wanted. It was always kind of easy to play high. Um, so I really had to come at it from that perspective of, I need to stay loose or else I'm just not going to be able to play. Um, Cause that tooth pain, like it was a shooting pain, it was almost like an electrical shock. Um, so yeah, after that, I remember just building it up and being pretty good for a long time. I think there was only one other case of that uh, tooth or or gum pain experience. Um, And I feel like at this point I've worked so that I've been able to get the sound uh, v- pretty close and to something that I like. Now the issue was, you know, I was going for the Garzone thing and for his sound, like to get the sound like that, or like Garzone or Levano, um, it's like you have to have a really open piece with a f- fairly hard read. And I realized I wasn't gonna be able to play that. I mean, I might be able to like work up towards something like that now, but actually now I'm kind of going for a little bit of a different thing, which I like, um, because I, I do think it's working out well and I'm able to to play it in a natural way and it, and it suits me. But it's like now with my sound, I'm almost going for a little bit more of a Chris Potter thing with maybe like a hint of Mark Turner and, and just talking about their, their actual sounds in what I'm, what I'm doing. So, you know, now I'm, I'm playing a seven HR star, uh, Jody jazz. So I've went down from the eight, eight star down to an eight, down to a seven star, down to a seven. And then I'm playing Vandoren traditional threes. So it's the dark blue box threes. And for the most part, this works really well. A lot of the reads are not great, but the ones that are good, like if I get a really good one, then it's like really, the sound is like really happening. Um, And most of the reads, you know, I just use for practice, and then I try to save the ones that are good. Um, But yeah, like with my sound now, I can't really... like get close to a Garzone sound or the sound that I had on the first Tucker brothers album. And it's a, a little sad in a way. Cause I, that's kind of what I wanted to go for for a long time. Um, cause I just thought it was like, man, not a lot of people play like that. It's like sort of in a way, I almost thought of that as like the pinnacle of the tenor sound. Now that's more of an opinion because it's like, okay, well Potter has his own thing. Turner has his own thing. I would say like, like, Branford and Ravi have their own thing too, and then Garzone. There's a lot of pinnacles, um, but I guess yeah. I was always kind of like, but um, I mean, once I really got into tenor, I was like, man, I want to go for that big dark thing that not a lot of people have because um, it's really hard to get there. But um, yeah, so I had to sort of change and and steer to a different course. Uh, but I'm okay with that. I actually really like how it's going now. Um, and I've sort of, uh, not really changed my concept but just being more aware of what works with the sound that I have now. Um, cause it's interesting how, like, if you have a specific sound, certain st- like styles or improvisational concepts tend to work better with it versus like other sounds. It's like the sound sort of has to match the style to some extent. Um, And so that has a lot to do with like your influences and that, especially in terms of like what you're taking in is just going to have a lot to do with like what you're actually putting out. And so yeah, I mean lately for me it's definitely been a lot of potter because I think like with his sound, and I've gotten a lot of insider information on his setup over the years too. He you know, he used to play um more of like a Garzone setup, like a really open piece with a really hard read and his balanced action. Now he plays his Mark Six. He plays uh, more of like a medium piece, but with a really soft read. Uh, I have a friend who met him here in India, and he actually borrowed my friend's neck strap for a concert <laughs> for whatever reason. And my friend got to talk to him, and, and Potter told him he plays a too hard read. So the Diodario too hard, which is real soft. If you're playing on like a seven star, he might be on an eight piece. That's a, that's very soft. And you can, I think you can hear there is a shift in his discography and his sound. I don't know exactly the year, what album it was, but if you listen to the earlier ones and his earlier recordings with like Dave Holland, like his tenor sound is very different um, than it is now. And in one of the interviews, he talks about how his setup and he, and he says like, he's like, man, yeah, I don't know how I was playing that, that old Set up in the past, a really hard one, and I get it. And to this day, I'm still like in awe of Garzone and Lovano, who can play those crazy big hard setups. But hey, I guess if you're getting up at 4 a.m. to do long tones, that's you know, that's how you can pull it off. (laughs) And you know, that's why he's Garzone. You know, it's just like he's an enigma. He's one of a kind, and he he can't be imitated really. Um, not to say that Potter can, uh, absolutely not. But at least in terms of a setup, I, I, I feel like I can, at this point, you know, use Potter Sound as a guide that's really going to help me get to a place where I can express myself with what I have. Like If I try to play in Garzone style with my current setup, which to me, it's... I think of Garzong as coming more from like the Stan Getz school, where it's a little bit more of like a subtone, and it's it's more focused on like the lower overtones um, and just getting a lot of body and warmth and like a a lot more of the subtone stuff. Um, if I try to play like that with my setup now, it doesn't always work, so I have to sort of like be aware of that, and you know be thinking about that because if you play in that way it's almost like you need that big really subtony sound just to have the effect if you play like that with like a softer reading you have like a little bit of a brighter sound it doesn't really work to like play, play in that style so that's what I'm kind of talking about in terms of like the sound matching the style um, yeah so that's pretty much what I wanted to cover in terms of my saxophone sound. I'm sure there's there's other things I could talk about. But if you have any questions or or any concerns in with your own journey or, or how you're working on it, you know, definitely get in touch. And I'd love to hear from you and, and try to help out in any way that I can too or at least offer some ideas or encouragement. Um but yeah, let me just see here. So for the saxophone sound I wrote down just a few ideas. So I was thinking, I just want to make sure I cover everything. So I got background, changing instruments, influences, embouchure changes and equipment. Yeah. So I think I pretty much covered all of that. Um, so yeah, I guess at this point we can sort of move into the next topic, which works really well in tandem with saxophone sound which is my current practice routine and I want to talk about ideas for just creating practice routines in general but how um, I've been able to continue playing in a healthy way pain-free and continue to improve my sound and my playing overall. So speaking of that I'm going to actually go do a little bit of practicing now and then I'm going to come back and record the rest of this podcast a little bit later on. All right, we are back. So I want to dive into this idea of having a practice routine, and I'm I'm going to get really specific and share what I've been doing with my practice routine, but also just talk about this concept in general and I guess sort of where I'm coming from with it. And hopefully you can take something from this talk and find it useful, or at least at least give you some sort of perspective on your own practicing. And if you feel like, you know, um, maybe you're not making the progress you want, it's always useful to dive into learning how other people do things and see if you can find ways to tweak your own practice sessions or routine if you have one in place. Um, So I think for starters, you know, I I was never really someone that had a strict routine. I mean, being in music school, I think one of the interesting things was that brass players in particular and trumpet players, I guess, are sort of notorious for this but actually having like a daily set routine that they do at the same time. And they play the same things. And it's typically early in the morning. And especially at IU, they, you know, a lot of times trumpet players would pair up. So if you had a friend in the program you'd be like, Hey, are you free every morning at 8am? And they'd say, yeah, okay, let's do routine together. And they would go into the practice room and do this basically worked out thing where, they would sort of be alternating playing things. Sometimes they would be playing things together. And the idea was to have a partner that had a, that was a good player that you could sort of match sound. You, so you could practice matching pitch and hear your tone and, and hear if you're blending with somebody, but also um, sort of keep you in line and like a partner and say like, hey, we're showing up at this time we're going to play, we're going to do our warm up and it's essentially like a workout partner where it's like you know if you bail you you're not only bailing on yourself but you're bailing on this other person too. So there's a lot of positive elements to it. Now, that being said, I know professional brass players who sort of don't like that idea of a routine because There are situations where you're not always going to be able to play through a routine before a gig and you might just have to say you only have five minutes to warm up and like, boom, you got to be ready. So there's that element of it too. And I totally get it. Um, And coming from my um, sort of background story that I just gave you on, where i got and and my sound journey you know when i was um mostly in college and then in my 20s all all the way up before i had that issue with my uh with tooth pain when i was playing a lot of altissimo i could like if i was practicing a lot i could work up to playing like basically straight I could play straight through for like a, probably an hour and a half without even really taking a, a serious break. I mean, maybe like a couple minutes here or there, but like I could just go. And what I realized later on was that the reason I could do that was because I was compensating with probably like a little. Um, lack of embouchure strength, I was compensating for that with the biting that I was doing. So that allowed me to play for a long time, but I wasn't really doing it in a healthy or proper way. And so now when I practice, I'm aware of that. And I'm like, especially, um, I think my facial muscles are, are more engaged. And they've become much more developed now that I essentially play in a whole different way than I did for over a decade. Um, th- I'm I'm actually using my facial facial muscles to support my embouchure, and essentially that is my embouchure, rather than biting down with my teeth and jaw. Um, and so my face muscles are they get worn out faster. And the way to help with that is to take breaks. So creating a routine around this idea of playing a lot throughout the day, but spreading it out, um, that essentially was born out of necessity. um, And that was the only way I was gonna get a, a good, decent amount of time in each day. Cause like if I tried to do what I used to do, when I was younger in college and in my twenties, like play for really long periods of time without stopping. I mean, I, I just couldn't, I just physically couldn't do it. Like my chops would just give out. Um, so I think I sort of started developing this, this idea first, just by experimenting. When I was talking about sort of building my embouchure up from the ground floor again, and essentially not being able to play above G above the staff. Um, and cause I was being very conscious of not biting. And so with that, um, you know, it was a whole new feeling to, to try to actually let my face do the work rather than like my teeth or jaw, like with, with pressure and really getting like the air involved and then a little bit, later on getting more into getting my voicing and overtones involved. Um, so I was experimenting with just like playing in little segments, setting the horn down, taking a few minutes break, playing like on and off throughout the day and then building up the time so that I could play longer during the segments when I was actually playing. Um, so at some point, and this is a relatively, recently. Um, I'm trying to think now, maybe even like, uh, beginning of last year or maybe the year before, I'm not exactly sure. I discovered this trumpet player, Tom Hooten, who's, um, he's the principal trumpet player in the LA Philharmonic. And he was posting a lot of stuff on YouTube, which is where I'm guessing I've found out about him. Um, originally he posts a lot of like really useful videos about like practicing and and his routine and like different things that he does. And he had this little thing you could download, which was um, uh, one of his practice sheets, which is essentially like a large grid um, where on the left side, you make a list of all the things you wanna work on. And then along the top, you would write the date. And then you have all these little open boxes on the whole page. So as the dates go by, you can check off the things if you worked on them. So then you can look back over the course of a month or so and say like, okay, what did I work on consistently? And what am I doing well? And like, what do I need to work on more? Or maybe what can I work on a little bit less? And it helps to just make sure that you're using your time wisely. And really, I think, especially like working on your weaknesses and the things that you really want to improve. Cause I I know a lot of times, you know, especially with students, we just want to go in the practice room and have an enjoyable experience. Not always make it feel like we're banging our head against the wall by trying to like hit, hit our weaknesses and just like, you know Um, and it's hard to have the awareness of, well, am I spending enough time working on these things that still challenge me? Um, because it's easy to go in there and just start just like doing things that we do well. Cause we want to sound good. We want to, and we feel good when we play well. But, um, again, this goes along with the idea of being your own boss. You kind of have to pull back and have the perspective to say like, all right, what's working, what do I need to do more of? And so I started using one of um, these practice sheets. I made my own essentially. And now my practicing is much more focused. And also the um, individual practice sessions are time-based. So I actually, I do use a a little timer, which is actually just like a kitchen timer. Typically like people use it for cooking food and timing things out in the kitchen. Um, And well, before that I was using my iPad and just using the timer on there. but I like the kitchen timer cause it's simple. You know, there are no distractions on there, no apps. I can't do anything else with it, but time my, my sessions. And I like that. Um, so yeah. And, and I think the, the nicest thing about this, of course, it allows me to like, I actually probably get much more quality practice time in now. Um, there may have maybe been times when I've practiced longer, um, like had a lot longer practice sessions. Um, <laughs> excuse me. But the thing about it is obviously like quality over quantity is key. Um, and so now um, essentially what I do, I'm just going to walk you through exactly what I'm currently doing. And I've got my practice sheet right here. If you wanna download this, I actually have it. Um, you can find the link in uh, a few places. If you go to like my website or in the like, description of my YouTube videos, I've got a link to it. So you can download this. You can see a sample of mine and then also get like a blank one if you wanna create your own. Um, but let me just read you down uh, the left side of my practice sheet. So I've got the, on the first, the first one is air slash subtones, And um, I've got 10 minutes there. So essentially this is just like, you know, I don't want to go into super, super detail about every exercise, um, but I do, I, I will be doing that in lessons. In my virtual studio, but that's it. Might take a little bit too long here. So essentially, yeah, air subtones, just you know, just blowing air in. I'm just allowing the embouchure to um, slowly take form there, and then gradually let the soft subtones creep in. The next one is overtones, 15 minutes. The next is high long tones, so long tones, working my my way up um, into the like mid-range up until the start of the altissimo essentially 15 minutes again and then i have slow movement slash intervals so this one is kind of whatever i feel like i need to do a lot of times it's like playing scales at quarter note equals 60 or even half note um, at that tempo of, of 60 bpm um, or sometimes i'll do like the ba da, da ba da, da you know, those little things moving up higher. Um. Yeah, and that's essentially, I mean, those four things that I just listed are, are essentially like what I consider the warm-up area, although it's not, like, I don't need all of that as a warm-up. It's, it's also definitely practicing, like, Um, it's, it's a lot of sound, uh, work overtones and high long tones. Um, like if I'm playing regularly every day, I can essentially feel fully warmed up in probably 15 minutes if I need to, but spreading this out and going slowly. Um, it, you know, I think of it as like a lot of endurance and sound development, um, At the start of each day, rather than thinking I have to do this as a warm-up, It's like, no, well, I'm actually practicing and because it is tiring, like it's not like I'm just getting to the point of being warm. I'm definitely like working out my chops. And one other thing with this section. So like with each of these 15 minute little, um, I guess activities, what I'll do is I'll set my timer for seven minutes and I play whatever I'm working on straight for seven minutes without a break. And then I, when that goes off, I set my horn down for like a minute and I like move around, move my shoulders, move my head, let my neck and like arms and wrists try to relax. And I'll just like do some basic movements just for like a minute. Then I'll pick my horn back up and do another seven minutes. So that's how I get to the 15 minutes, seven and seven with a one minute break in between. Um, and if that sounds a little too rigid or just in general, maybe unappealing to you, I, I fully understand. And I was even a little skeptical. I was like, yeah, is this really going to work? But the more I got into doing this sort of routine, I actually, actually love it because I know I'm hitting all the things that I need to, but I'm not wasting time by like overplaying things. Um, but I am improving along the way. So like I'm improving by actually playing less time than I used to in the past. Um, But I'm getting a lot out of it because I'm, I'm very consistent. Like now I'm to the point where almost every single day I'm working through the majority of what I have on my practice sheet. So that's the first section, those four things. Um, And Yeah, and you know, uh, I don't always do these at the exact same time every day, because I don't really like wake up to an alarm clock. I like to let myself sleep as long as I need, and so, and sometimes I'll exercise first thing when I get up. So, um, the practicing, I naturally get it in. It's not like for me every morning at 8 a.m. I'm hitting it. It's just like I'm kind of more open to it, and uh, in a way, I think that helps me not get burnt out. If I'm always forcing myself to start and stop at the same time, it feels like a, a little bit too, like, like I'm in the military. Um, but I, for some reason, I actually really like timing my practice sessions. And I think one of the, the most helpful things with using a timer is that I don't overplay and I save both my, um, physical energy, but also my mental energy. So sometimes it feels like I'm in the middle of my overtones and it's it's really feeling good. The timer goes off and I really wanna keep going. Um, and in the past, I would have, but now by stopping, it allows me to save my chops and my brain um, to actually hit a lot of other stuff throughout the day versus before, like in the past, there have been long stretches of time where all I've done is work on my tone and not get to actual music stuff but now it's a priority to get through the tone exercises and make sure that I'm hitting actual music. And, you know, I'll get into like what that stuff is, but you know, that's the biggest thing is is making sure I'm leaving time for the other priorities. Um, all right. So the next section is just, it's four more segments and each segment, is a different exercise that I will share in the YouTube series Sean's Practice Room. So you may or may not have seen these videos, but every Tuesday and Friday I upload um, a mini video um, where I'm sharing something I'm playing or something I'm like practicing or working on or learning and then I talk a little bit about it. So it's like a minute or two of playing and then a minute or two of talking. I'm, I'm trying to be really clear and precise in these and, and explain exactly what I am doing and why I'm doing it. Um, and yeah, so I work on those and a lot of times I'm, um, it's related exactly to what's happening. So like this coming week, I'm sharing a video of myself, um, practicing an original piece that I wrote that I'm going to be recording in. uh, uh, like six weeks. Um, so working on different sections through there and then talking a little bit about what it is, you know, why I'm working on it. Um, and just uh, essentially sharing that the process. Um, and sometimes I'll just share like me blowing on a tune. And so, yeah, so that's my practicing. And, And for each of those little sessions, again, they're 15 minutes each. And I'm hitting four of those. So, so, so far we are up to almost two hours of playing. It's like an hour and 55 minutes. So we're, we're up to eight different things on the practice sheet so far. And these are again, all spread out. Um, and so it, a lot of times, like I won't be done with this until like early afternoon and it's only two hours of playing, but you know, this is sort of what I'm getting at. I like to spread out because I can hit more and build my endurance and maintain without like overdoing it. Okay. The next section, um, I have four things again. The first one is r- review slash learn tunes and I've got 20 minutes here. The next one is improvisation, 20 minutes. Then I've got soprano 20 minutes and clarinet 15 minutes. So yeah, I mean, this section is pretty self-explanatory. I think this is, um, the section where I, I get to be a little more creative, especially like how I'm working on a tune and I get to decide like, you know, what new tune I'm learning. And then the improvisation section is pretty open-ended too, but I have noticed that um, if I'm actually spending a decent amount of time improvising each day it makes a big difference go figure <laughs> but the the gist of what I'm getting at is that I can't just work on technique and rely on playing on, on my gigs to that like that's not going to maintain my skills as an improviser but it's definitely not going to Allow lot them to improve. So I'm trying to work in more time. And I was never really a big uh, practicer of a lot of improvisation, like almost like performing in the practice room. And I guess the reason was uh, essentially that I felt like I mainly needed to just make sure I could play my instrument well and have a good sound. And from there, if I knew a tune, you know, I would be able to play on it in a musically or musical and, and natural way. Um, but now I feel like I do want to actually explore more concepts related to improvisation and develop what I can do. So I'm I'm trying to take the time to actually work on that more in the practice room. Um, but again, for me, I think like you know, if if I was improvising really really well and didn't have a very good sound i w- would not be very happy with that but on the flip side if i had a gr- if i have a great sound and Im- in-, in improvising okay to fairly well then i'm going to be pretty happy because um i guess yeah to me it's like the sound is it's one of the most important things. And if you neglect it, um, then people aren't really going to want to listen to your improvisation. And, you know, I, I think just from like, listening to a lot of great saxophone players over the years in particular, it's like, I know what's possible in terms of the actual sound. And I want to continue to work towards that. Um, and yeah. And, and one of the things that I sort of notice with a lot of players is that um, they maybe sort of stop working on sound things at a certain point. And I can kind of notice that sometimes. And, you know, it's like when you get and it's hard, too, because like if you're not a saxophone player, even if you're a musician that plays another instrument, you may not even really notice these small um, differences in sound that I'm talking about, but man, I, I mean, I sure notice it. And I guess that's sort of what allows me to have a good sound because I'm, I'm very particular and very zeroed in on improving the sound. And I, I feel like, especially over the past few years, my improv has improved quite a bit and it continues to now that I'm working in more improvisation time in the actual practicing. Um so yeah, and then Soprano and Clarinet just to, just doing a lot of fundamental things on those, you know. Um not really well soprano I am trying because I just got a new soprano. I'm gonna do a video on that too, but um soprano I'm trying to get the sound and the comfort level up. With clarinet, I'm essentially just trying to like maintain what I have because I Still like to use it on certain projects and and be able to pull it out and play it well without a ton of, like, work ahead of time. Um, so, yeah. And then I've got one more section, which is has just two things. The first one is unaccompanied, and that's 25 minutes. And then the last one is music for Trio, and that's another 25 minutes. So for those, these are specific album projects that I'm working on. And so I'm trying to practice this music on a regular basis to make sure I'm playing it at a, at a high level when I want to record it. So I am planning on doing an unaccompanied album, or it's just me just playing saxophone. I'd like to do tenor, soprano, and clarinet. And I've got um, a pretty good uh, um, playlist of demos, more or less, on my stuff that I've been working on, and I'm just trying to be able to play it well and develop the compositions and and make sure they're fully fledged out. And then with the music for Trio, that's the thing with myself and then a guitarist and bass player. And for that, we're gonna be recording in March. So I've actually been spending more time on that um, on a day-to-day basis and, and not hitting all of the other things on my routine. So that's the thing if like that's the the whole routine that I have and and if I play that whole thing, it adds up to four hours of straight playing and you know very few breaks. It's just those like little one minute breaks that I was mentioning. Um, so it's a lot and i'm I'm definitely not doing the whole thing right now. This is sort of my goal. I want to work up to be able to do this whole thing every day. Um, And I, I definitely think it's doable. The trick is knowing exactly how much time I need to wait in between sections. That's the thing I haven't quite mastered. I mean, I'm getting a lot of quality practice in. I mean, I'm probably in the one and a half to two and a half hour range of of like straight playing each day spread out throughout the day. I mean, but like that's all like playing time. Um, and I'd love to work it up to like the three to four hour plus range on a daily basis. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll I'll be sharing the journey, uh, here and, and, you know, if you continue to tune in, you'll, you'll hear how this is going for, for better or worse. Um. But yeah, I mean, I'm really liking this because a lot of, you know, the other thing is like a lot of times we'll go in the practice room. If we don't have a plan or something in mind or sort of like a track to follow, we might get a little bit done, but it's a lot harder to make significant strides of improvement if you're not tracking yourself in some way so with this i'm really i'm able to set up a really solid foundation and then build on it each and every day and i can notice little things like um you know i've been really regular with the high long tones and the overtones especially and with those I've been able to notice I've, I've been able to get higher in the overtone series and the long tones, especially up in the higher range, um, are feeling a lot more comfortable. Like I was talking about, like with the Garzon thing where he said his tone was more solid and mine was just like slightly wavy, you know, knocking out little issues like that is it's, it's difficult, you know, and these are the types of things that you really want to try to become your own best teacher and, and just shine the spotlight on those weaknesses and say like, how can I knock this out? How can I tackle this and, and use these, um, challenges that I have as springboards for my own growth. And, you know, it's, you just gotta be brutally honest and make a list of your weaknesses and then just start working through it. And, um, that sort of reminds me of like one of the, the key realizations I I've had, I think um, maybe even just like it within the past couple of years and, and with starting to use a practice sheet like this is that probably the most important thing when it comes to practicing is consistency. And just to be r- Really clear with what I mean. You know, I think a lot of times we'll get super motivated. Like, we'll hear a concert or we'll have like a, or we we'll see a master class or we'll get a lesson. And like the next day, we're like so excited. And we're like, oh man, I'm going to practice three hours today and you do it. And then the next day, you're like, oh yeah, that was great. I'm going to, I'm going to do that again. And the next day after that, you're like, well, you could have a couple of songs You're like, All right, I'm going to try this again. And you, you play for like an hour and a half. Then your friend is like, Hey, you want to come get dinner or go, go hang out? You're like, yeah, yeah. I just put in a lot of good time. I'm, I'm good. I can just leave the rest of the day. And then the next day you have, you forget you have to like go visit your family or something and you don't practice (laughs) and you know, And, and essentially that's how it continues on. So you had those two really amazing practice days and then it sort of petered off. Um, and the the trick is to figure out what you can actually maintain right now so like if you had to practice say everyday starting now for the rest of the year what's a, what is like a realistic amount of time that you think you could do and what are the things that you really need to work on and if you think of it in that way then you can just sort of plug in plug in those things into those amounts of times, and then you'll know how much time you can allot to each little thing. Um, And it's challenging. And a a lot of it is like the mental game, because you got to realize like when you're highly motivated, it's easy to go in and spend a few hours. If you're not highly motivated, you want to just like watch Netflix or go hang out with people or play video games or whatever it is that you do. And you have to realize that by doing that, you're just going to lose a lot of your consistency and you're not going to continue to improve on these specific things that you know you want to get better at. Um, so the big thing that I've, I've noticed is that, like, if I have one thing I'm trying to tackle, um, like, for instance, the, the very first video in the Sean's Practice Room series on YouTube, where it, the title of it is Fun with Arpeggios, You know, that specific exercise I was working on almost every day and I had it in one of my little 15 minute segments. So I was only working on it about 15 minutes a day and, but I was consistent to the point where I did it almost every day for like maybe three weeks or something like that. Um, That's what allowed me to get it up to the speed that I played in the video. Now, there's no way I could have done that if I was like, one day I was just like, man, I'm, I'm super excited to practice. Um, I'm going to work on this thing for like two hours and then just boom, 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 play that for two hours straight. And then the next day play for another two hours. And then after that, it's like, oh man, I've, I've played that a ton. I just need to play other things. You know, you, it's almost like you can get a little bit burnt out even just in the short term, if you like really just like go hard on something, but You need to think like, if I'm gonna learn something really hard, I need to spread it out and I need to tackle it in bite-sized pieces. That's why I like the the practice sheet thing because it allows me to see what I'm tackling and just check off the boxes and and track, like be realistic what I'm actually doing every single day. Um, And so, you know, if your personality works with that, then that can be great, you can give it a try. Um, some people may not be into that and that's fine too. You know, it's the, the, the main thing is that you really do want to just find what works for you. And, and what I'm sharing is sort of what I've developed and what I've discovered for myself to be beneficial for myself and my own growth. Um, but I do think, no matter how you choose to go about this, if you create a super strict routine where it's you and you thrive on that, like every day at 8 a.m. I'm doing my long tones, then at 11 a.m. I'm doing my scales, then at 2 p.m. I'm working on my tunes, you know, something like that. Some people would love that. Um, some people might like it more open-ended, like in the morning, I'm doing my warm-up and technique, in the afternoon, I'm doing music stuff. That's a little bit more of what I'm doing and how I use my time. Um, However you do it, I think the the universal thing is consistency is key. And, you know, if you're learning a tune, let's say you're trying to learn a hard tune, like um, maybe like moments notice, you could st- work on it every day for like four or five days, but then if you stop and don't work on it again for like two or three weeks, then You may have to even review it a little bit just to see if you remember it. And when you're doing that, then you're sort of wasting time because if you would have stayed consistent, you would have learned it in a much deeper way. And say you work on it just a little bit every day for an entire month. By the end of that month, you're not gonna forget that tune. If you really worked on it every single day, even if it was only like 10 or 15 minutes, that refreshing the brain each day in the memory and the fingers and just the whole process of playing through it is super, super helpful. So that's, I think probably the, the biggest thing I would suggest is that whatever it is, if it's like you want to improve your sound or your time or, um, or learn more tunes, it's like being consistent is the thing and figuring out how to do that how it works with your schedule and your personality and your style, um, without burning yourself out. That's really the thing to, to strive for. So yeah. Um, well I think that's pretty much everything I had in mind to go over for this podcast. Um, so as I said in the beginning, you know, be sure to hit me up on email, If you have any questions, it's saxophonejournal at gmail.com. And, yeah, feel free to share any tips that have worked for you. I'm always curious, like, what people do and what they found um, that works for them and their routine. So hit me up if you have any questions. And I'm always happy to answer questions here on the podcast. So, yeah, don't be shy or uh, just feel free to say hello at the very least. All right, well, have an excellent month and uh, I will see you back here next time.